Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Help me polarize, help me polarize, help me down. Those stairs is where I'll be on all my problems. Help me polarize, help me polarize, help me down. Good morning, ACF. Thank you for being here with us this morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors. And man, welcome to our 10 a.m. service. I'm so glad and just honored that you guys would take some time out of your Sunday, out of your weekend to come and hang out as a community and, and walk through the Word of God together. Um, if you're a guest of ours this morning, I just want to say welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you're here with us. And uh, we have a saying around here that we're in this together. And we believe absolutely, that we are in this thing called life together, that it doesn't matter what your background is, what your history is, what your beliefs are, where you come from, or anything like that, that we are all in this journey of life. And we hope that our ACF community, that we could be a part of your journey, part of your story, um, even if it's just a small part, as we all kind of walk through this struggle of faith, and who is God, and what does that mean for me, and who am I in Him, and and no matter where you're at on that journey, um, we're in this together, and we want to walk that with you this morning. So we've been in this series called Polarized, and uh, we've been talking about how to be the church to a polarized society, to a polarized culture. We've been talking about how do we be the kingdom of heaven? How do we be the light of the world, right? How do we be the city on a hill when, when everything around us seems like they just want to fight? that everything around us is so polarized. And so we've been on this journey, and um, we're coming into the last week of that, which is today is the last week of our Polarized series. And next week, we're doing something that we've started doing at the end of every series we call Q&D, question and discussion. And we don't have all the answers. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but we want to talk about your questions. And so if you have questions about anything we've been going through in this series, you can text those questions to this number on the screen behind me, and we will do our best to get to your questions. Um, I would suggest maybe taking a picture of that um, so that as, as you can keep it with you, and then as you think of things, maybe you're driving down the road tomorrow, and a question pops in your head, you would pull over and not text while you're driving, but... Um, that when, you, when it's safe to do so, that you would text your question into that number um, so that we can work on discussing that next week. But today's the last day that we're in this series, Polarized. And I'm going to be honest with you, the tone of today is, is going to be, it's a little more serious for me this morning, um, even than when it was on Wednesday. Um, this issue, this idea of Polarized, it's a little bit, it's a lot of bit in our face right now. Um, 
I'm sure most of you heard the news, and if you didn't, that 50 people were murdered in New Zealand this weekend. 50 people. And that number was, is, is continuing to rise. 50 people was before we started first service at 8.30 this morning. I don't know. It may have grown since then. But 50 people were murdered at a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand this weekend. This is what polarization brings, right? If we don't learn how to love each other, love the way the Bible commands, this is the road that, that polarization can go down, this road of arrogance and pride, and in, in reality, at the end of the day, of thinking that we are better than somebody else. And we talked about that last week, and we're going to continue this conversation this morning, but I want to put a pause button on this to go, have we reflected on this? Have we really thought about this and not just try to ignore it and go, man, that's on the other side of the world? Maybe your thoughts were, man, I'm glad it's not us this time. But, but have you stopped to really reflect and go, man, 50 people, that is hundreds upon hundreds of people that are directly, directly involved with that who have sustained massive loss. Men and women and children who have been taken and snatched out of this earth because somebody thought that they were better than somebody else. Somebody thought that they were right and somebody else was wrong in what they believed, in, in, in their nationality, in their race. I mean, it is all of those things. It is religion. It is race. It is immigration. It was all of those issues that caused 50 people to be murdered. And I was, as I was reflecting on that this last day and a half or so, I was just brought back to this place of this is why this is so important. This is what this polarized topic is all about. And quite honestly, this is our heart here at ACF Church. This is, these are the issues that we want to be able to tackle and deal with. And how do we approach society? How do we approach our culture? How do we approach our world when everybody's just feels like they want to be against each other. I'm going to pause for just a moment, and we're going to, we're going to pray. We're going to take a, just a minute of our morning, and we're going, to, we're going to pray for our brothers and our sisters in humanity. Right? Because Scripture is very clear that we all bear the image of God. Now, we can be right on things, we can be wrong on things, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, honestly, what your belief, your faith, your your race or anything like that is that, that we all bear the image of God at, at a basic level. So we're going we're gonna to take a moment and pray right now. God, we just pray for the community of Christ Church. God, we pray for the nation of New Zealand. God, we pray directly for these families who, who are suffering the ultimate loss the loss of family, the loss of mothers and daughters and sisters and brothers and fathers and sons. And God, man, forgive us for the murderous thoughts that we've had in our own lives. Forgive us for the times that we thought that we were better than somebody else. God, I pray that you would be known in Christ church. God, I pray that through tragedy would come, God, redemption. Jesus, make yourself to be loud and known, Jesus, in the Muslim community. God, that, that 
Again, the redeeming quality of who you are, God, because that is what it's about. You redeem our brokenness. You redeem our fear. You redeem our anger. You redeem, God, you bring back beauty from ashes, Lord. I pray that right now. God, in Christ church, I pray that in New Zealand. God, I pray that for the community. God, I pray that for the families. Lord, let us... Not just look down and go, oh, that's too bad. But Lord, let us repent in our own hearts for the times we've had hatred and murderous thoughts in our own souls. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week we, 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 we were talking about, we're in this uh, series called Polarize, and we were talking about how to be wrong. We talked about last week, what's the right way to be wrong? Because there's a right way to be wrong, and there's a wrong way to be wrong. And, and what we talked about was, man, the way to be wrong is, is to seek to understand, not just to be understood. And we talked about how all of us are wrong, presently, currently, right now. That we're all wrong in something. In, in some belief we have, in some you know, thing we stand for, or in some application of a belief that we have. That all of us are wrong. And it's quite interesting because we'll all admit and can all grasp and understand that we've all been wrong, and we can all grasp and understand and admit that we will be wrong in the future, but to, to admit that we're wrong currently in the present, that's kind of tough to do. And most of us will say, would say, yeah, probably right now I'm not really wrong in any great, grievous area, but the fact of the matter is that we probably all are in some area of our life. And we, I challenge you guys to leave here last week and to go, man, God, where am I wrong to pray the prayer of David says, man, Holy Spirit, see if there be any wicked way in me. Reveal it to me so I could repent of my wrongness. And repenting just means this. It's not saying, oh, I'm sorry I was wrong. It's saying, no, I'm going to think differently. That's what the word repent means. That I'm going to think differently about this area. And so that was last week. And we, last week we jumped into this story in the book of Luke and we talked about how Jesus was hanging out with these guys. And these guys quite literally thought that they were better than everybody else around them. They thought they were better than everyone else around them because they thought that they had earned righteousness before God. They thought that they had been so good and done such a good job at being right and doing the right things. They thought that they had been so good at that that they had climbed the ladder and earned a place before God because of what they did and because of that that they were better than everyone around them who couldn't do that. And so Jesus perceives this, and he starts to tell this story in, in, in Luke chapter 18, and he says, okay, guys, I want to tell you a story. Listen up. And he says, there's two men. They go to the temple to pray, and he talks about this, this Pharisee, and we're going we're gonna to continue this story today because we stopped it in the middle of it last week, but if, in case you weren't here last week, I want to catch you guys up. Jesus is telling the story, and he says, look, there's this, this Pharisee and this tax collector that went to the temple, and as Jesus is telling the story, the guys around would have seen the Pharisee as the hero. As he's telling the story, the Pharisee would have been Superman, and the tax collector would have been Lex Luthor, okay? Like, they were just like, yay, Pharisee, the entire time. We read it, and if you've been in church at all, you'll read that story and go, oh, Pharisee, bad guy, tax collector, good guy. Well, the twist of the story is they're both the bad guy, actually. But Jesus is telling the story, and the guys that he's telling it to are like, yes, this Pharisee is awesome. And Jesus says that the Pharisee went in the temple, and he prayed before God, and he prayed something along these lines. God, thank you that I'm not greedy. 
Thank you that I am not an adulterer. Thank you, God, that I am righteous, that I have earned my righteousness because of what I've done. And in case you don't remember what I've done, God, here's what I've done. I, I fast twice a week. I tithe on everything. And when I say everything, I literally mean everything. Like if this Pharisee would have come to your house and knocked on your door and said, hey, I'm out of flour, I'm baking right now, can I borrow some flour? And you gave him some flour, he would have gone, okay, 10% of that flour to God, right? And walked off. Like that's what they did. And it was this self-righteousness of them trying to climb this ladder of the law to, to, be, to earn their way to God. And so this Pharisee's praying, and then he finally says, oh, God, and thank you that I'm not like that guy over there, that loser, that, that evil, heathen man over there. Thank you that I'm not like him, right? And he saw himself better than him, right? And that's the thinking process that leads us to the place of what we've seen in the news this weekend, right? I can guarantee you that that Pharisee probably had some murderous thoughts towards that tax collector at some point in his life, some hatred towards him. The self-righteousness, the self-propelling, like I'm just better than the people around me. And when you think that, that's the road that it goes down. It eventually will lead to thoughts of, yeah, why are you even here? You don't deserve to be here. If everyone could just be like me, this world would be a better place. You ever thought that one? everyone would just think like me, this country would fix itself. Yeah, I don't think so. But he talks about this tax collector and this tax collector's thinking process. Now I want to pick up the story, Luke 18, 13. And Jesus continues this story and he starts talking, I'm sorry, he was first talking about the Pharisee. Now he jumps over to the tax collector. And this is what Jesus says, Jesus talking. He says, but the tax collector standing afar off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest, saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus, again, is telling this story to the guys, and he's done with the Pharisee, and he starts talking about the tax collector, and he says the tax collector was standing afar off, away from everybody else, and I'm sure these men are thinking, of course he's away from everybody else. He doesn't even deserve to be in the presence of that Pharisee. And he says that the, the tax collector, he wouldn't raise his eyes to heaven, but he just strikes his chest. He just beats his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me. It's this, this image of passion, this image of the tax collector understanding the weight of his sin, maybe for the first time ever. Understanding the brokenness, understanding that he does not deserve to stand before a holy God. And he beats his chest saying, God, he doesn't say, God, forgive me for my sins. God, I'm sorry I've been stealing from everybody. God, I'm sorry that I've not lived a life of righteousness. I'm going to try better next time. That's what he prays. He just throws himself at the mercy of God. He just says, God, I am a sinner. Please let your wrath pass over me. Let your wrath pass over me, a sinner. I'm not going to argue that I'm not a sinner. I'm not going to try to debate. Well, this, this one time was probably a little justified for this sin in my life. No, he just throws himself down, understanding again the weight of his sin, not looking to heaven, but beating his chest, saying, God, I am a sinner. Just let your wrath pass over me. As Jesus is telling the story to these men, I would imagine that they're probably like, 
right. God's wrath pass over the tax collector? I, I think not. I think not. I think that tax collector is about to get everything he has coming to him. Because, man, he's been a terrible person. I think that this tax collector is about to experience the wrath of God, and he deserves it. And Jesus, at the end of the story here, he, he flips the script. He totally twists the story up to what these guys thought. He ends it by saying, again, this is the guy, the tax collector, he left justified, not the Pharisee. He left justified. And what does that word justified mean? It's a kind of a churchy word. We don't really use it a lot in our culture. But what it means is he stood right before God. That he was made right in the presence of God. In the very presence where he didn't feel he could lift his eyes. In the very presence where he just threw himself at the mercy of God. He stood right. He was made just as if he had never sinned. So he was actually made righteous. The very thing that the, tech, that the uh, Pharisee thought he had earned, thought he had worked for, he actually didn't have at all. And the tax collector, humbling himself, he throws himself down and he leaves Right? And so today we want to talk about how to be right. Because how many of you guys know that you can be right and yet be very wrong? So how do we be right? How did the tax collector leave the temple right? Well, I can tell you this. It wasn't through his great debating skills, right? Like he didn't, he didn't come prepared for an argument with the Pharisee and be like, hey, I'm going to tell you how I'm right. He didn't have all his facts lined out. His story's all kind of Googled up. Okay, like this, he's probably going to come at me with this, so I'll come at him with that. It's not how we left right, but so often this is how we think that we're right. See, being right is not about being loud. Being right is not being a, about, like, you know, being brash or, or, or arrogant or just confident in what we know. Being right is not even about being right. Let me explain it like this. You see, because the Pharisee, he had a lot of right things. He had, he had a lot of right in what he believed. Again, we talked about this last week. He had facts right. right. He understood the law. He knew the law. He was trying to live by the law. We always think of the Pharisees as like the evil bad guys, if you've been around the church at all growing up, but, but they were quite literally trying to honor God. That's what he was trying to do. He was trying to honor the law, to live by the law. He knew the law. He knew the history. He tried to honor the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like He was trying to do this he knew these facts, and yet he was the one who was wrong. So how do we be right? Let me explain to you like this. Let me break it down like this. Maybe something to help us understand how we can be wrong even when we're factually right. And the proper way to be right. Who's anybody married in the house this morning? Any married people? Yes, all right. One, one person's excited to be married. It's pretty good, actually, in a room this size. No, how many guys, and if you're not married, please pay attention right now. How many of you guys who are married have ever been in a disagreement with your spouse, an argument with your spouse, and you were factually right, and yet you lost the argument? Has anybody been in an argument, you're factually right, and you walked away going, how was I so wrong? How's, thank you. Yes, people like, over here. <laughs> Every day. Yes, 
We, we experience this, and, and you don't have to be married to experience this, of course. It's just the thing that's in our face every day. But we've been in arguments where we've been factually right, and we walked away from God going, man, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. And in fact, I would say that there's been many marriages even damaged because somebody was factually right and yet walked away wrong in the argument. In fact, I would say that all of us in this room probably some way have been touched through a friend or directly or through a family member through the, the horrible tragedy of divorce because perhaps somebody in that relationship was, was right factually but yet couldn't seem to understand how to be right positionally. Didn't understand it because we think that being right is about winning the argument, but being right is actually about winning the relationship. That is how we be right. In a society that's completely polarized, how do we approach the society and, and be right? We do it by not trying to win the argument, but by trying to win the relationship. And Jesus was the perfect example of this. Right? Jesus was the perfect example of this. He could approach people with the facts, and he did, and he was never wrong, except when he approached you with the facts, he was not worrying about winning any sort of argument. He did not care about the argument. He cared about winning the relationship. And sometimes he did win the relationship. Sometimes he didn't. But he was able to walk away from that knowing that he was right positionally in where he stood because His intent was always to win the relationship. We see it with the woman at the well, right? He approaches her with facts. And if you don't know the story, it's this woman that approaches Jesus, and she starts asking him this crazy theology stuff. Where should we worship God? You people say on this mountain. My people say on this mountain. And Jesus is like, look, you're missing the point. Look, yeah, there's going to be a day when people are going to worship God with spirit and truth. There you go. I answered your question, but here's what's important. Here's some facts for you that you've been married five times. The man you're living with is not even your husband. Like, eh, you got a problem. But, but I, I want to I win this relationship. And he, he gets into her soul, right? He starts talking about her. He starts bringing her back to the kingdom. He lets her experience the kingdom of heaven, the living water. She experiences it. It changes her life, and she goes and tells her whole community. Jesus ends up staying there for a couple of days, and like the whole town gets saved. Why? Because Jesus was not worried about winning an argument, some theological argument with this woman. He was worried about winning the relationship. And what ends up happening, and and, and we think this, especially in the church, we think that if I can convince you, if I can win the argument, you'll come to Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, no, if you can experience the kingdom of heaven, you'll come to Jesus, right? If, If the Holy Spirit works in your heart, you'll come to Jesus. It's not about me winning an argument. So how do we do this? How do we... How do we walk into this area of being kind of right positionally, as I like to explain it this morning? How do we walk and not just worrying about winning the argument? How do we engage in a culture that is really wrong in so many areas and yet believes it's so right? Right, Romans 1 says that, they, that our culture is exchanging a truth for a lie. They, they want to believe the lie, but how do we engage with that? without just trying to win the argument. Because I think naturally, our, our natural um, kind of reaction is to try to like just smash people, just destroy people with the truth. Like you're going to see the truth, I'm going to shove it down your throat, and if you don't agree with that, like, just, I'm going to crush you, right? Oftentimes we see arrogance that way. Like I see you being arrogant, so what do I do? I got to get my arrogance just a little bit above yours so I can bring you back down, right? Like I'll be the arrogant police. Like if I see arrogance, oh, right? 
Humility comes from, you know, comes after arrogance, like, I'm just going to wait and watch you fall. It's going to be awesome. I just hope I'm there to see it. Right? That's our attitude so often. I think it's a natural attitude for us because the, the tax collector was humbled. He was humble before a holy God. So how do we walk in humility? Because it's not just a switch you can turn on. It's not like, okay, I got to go into this discussion today. I got to go to work. I got to deal with my family. I got to deal with my classmates. I guess I'm going to turn that humble switch on, be humble. It doesn't work that way. It's hard, especially when you are right. Because, church, we, we are right in, in some areas of, of faith, in areas of how God designed it and intended this world to work. We're right. But how do we engage in a community and in a culture that says, no, 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 you're the wrong one? Right? How do you engage? If you're more educated than somebody, if you have more experience than somebody, if you are actually factually right, it's really hard to walk in and be humble. How do we do that? I want this to be practical for us. I want us to be able to walk away and, and put this into our lives, put this into practice. And, and I, love, I love, we're going to read what Paul writes in the book of Philippians. He's writing to a church that is dealing in, in, that is in a polarized culture. And dealing with a lot of this same stuff that we're dealing with today, they're dealing with racial tension for sure in the church, for sure in the church. They're dealing with massive racial tension. They're dealing with theology issues as the Jews and and the Greeks are trying to come together and hash this thing out. This is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to break up this little passage in a couple different ways, but in Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, he says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. I want to stop there for a minute. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. We so often operate in rivalry. And what is rivalry? What does it actually look like? Rivalry is this, me versus you, us versus them, left versus right, right? Whenever you make something versus against, all of a sudden it becomes rivalry. Somebody's got to win, Somebody's got to win. And we do this politically. We do this socially. We make it us versus them. Whatever side you're on, right? Republicans versus Democrats, right? Gun control versus gun rights. We make it about common core math versus not common core math, whatever it is. As soon as you do that, it becomes rivalry. Somebody's got to win. And Paul says, do nothing out of rivalry, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. That, what does it say? In humility consider others more important than yourself. What if we began to do that, church, to see others to be more important than us? Not better than us. Right? Not better than, because nobody's better than. We're all on an equal playing field. We all bear the image of God, and yet we're all broken sinners. That no one is like what the Pharisees thought that they were, self-righteous. No one's earned anything. But what if we considered others to be more important than ourselves? We walk into meetings going, man, the people I'm meeting with are more important than me. I go into discussions with people on the other side of the political line than I am, or the other side of the view that I have, and I go, they're more important than I am. They're more important than me. That, how would that change our view and perspective on people? Because oftentimes when we are right, again, we're talking about how to be right. When we're right, rightness brings pride so often with it. Rightness brings pride so much of the time. And pride leads to self-righteousness. Again, well, I'm right, I'm better than you. 
I'm more important than you because I stand on the right side of the line. But remember this. I love this quote by St. Augustine. It was pride that changed angels into devils. Quite literally in Scripture. It was pride that changed angels into devils. And honestly, it is pride in our lives and pride in our world and pride in our society that leads us to do very evil things. It is pride and self-righteousness that leads us to do things like what happened in New Zealand. It is pride that leads us to these places. But if, if I consider you to be more important than me, and you consider me to be more important than you, we're on a level, even playing field, aren't we? That doesn't always happen. I can consider you to be more important than me. That doesn't mean you're going to do that back. But this is what Paul calls us to. And in fact, how do we do that? Because again, this is hard. I want to get us down level by level to understand what do I do tomorrow morning when I go to work? What do I do tomorrow morning when, sorry college and high school and junior high students, when you go back to school? Spring break's over, in case you didn't know. Your reports are due tomorrow. Start working now. But what do I do? How do I consider people better or not better than, but more important than me, when I've always thought of me being more important than them. What did God do for us, right? Think about that. What did God do for us? God who is, I want to say always right, but that's not even, that's not even accurate. God who rightness is the reflection of like, God's not right. God is. And whatever is not lined up with God, that's what's wrong. That's what we compare right and wrong. It's not like God makes the right decision. No, God is, and he is rightness, right? So God, who is rightness, dealing with humanity, who is always wrong, I think God's got a little more experience than us, a little more education than us, right? Like, God is, and yet he, how does he deal with us? I think we could learn a lot and Paul actually goes right on in this letter, and he says this. He tells us. He teaches us. Philippians 2.5. First of all, he says, make your attitude that of Christ Jesus. You want to know how to do this well? You know how to be right? Be right by making your attitude that of Christ Jesus. Well, what attitude is that? Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man he, uh, in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. He did not consider his equality with God to be something used to his advantage. He didn't go, okay, I'm going to come down here. I'm going to rule over these people because I am God. I am equal with God, and this is my advantage. No, he came down. He didn't try to destroy. He didn't try to smash us. He came down, and he said, I'm going to take on the form of a slave. I'm going to serve them. He became humble. He chose humility. And how did he go about doing that, though? Again, I want to go back to humility is not a switch. We just flip. Like, okay, I'm just going to be humble now. Just be humble. In fact, I'm so humble, I'm amazing at being humble. Right? Like, how do we do that? It's very clear right here in Scripture. It's, it says it right here in verse 8. How did Jesus become humble? He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus... 
Humility came from his obedience, and his obedience was so extreme, it led him to the point of death, even death on a cross. And why does Paul throw that little and death on a cross? Like you'd think being obedient unto death is enough, but it's not even enough. He says he was humble to the point of obedience, but it was obedience to death on a cross. In other words, the readers would have understood that there's death, and then there's like death in shame. Like death on a cross was the most shameful way to die. That Jesus came and he bore our shame, our sin and shame, because he's trying to restore the way it was originally. He's trying to bring us to a place with no shame, the kingdom of heaven. And so it was, it was death and death in shame as well. That it was through obedience that Jesus humbled himself. We learn humility through obedience. We learn humility through obedience. But you can ask the question, well, hum- obedience to what? Obedience to what? Like obedience just to the laws, obedience just to my mom and dad, obedience to like the Ten Commandments. Like what, what are we to be obedient to that leads us to humility? And I would say this, it's obedience to the law of love. Obedience to the law of love. And what is that? I think a lot of times we misunderstand what the law of love is. We, we start thinking, oh, I just got to love my neighbors, got to love everybody around me. And that's true. But yet, it is not just like we throw everything out the window like, oh, there is right and there is wrong. So I'm just, but hey, I'm just going to love you. So whatever you want to do, you do. Whatever you believe, you believe. I'm just going to leave you alone and just let you do your own thing. And that's loving, right? Like the Beatles, right, wrote about imagine. Like that's love. Just imagine. We just get rid of everything. And love, that's not true either. That's not the law of love. See, Jesus is, is confronted uh, during his ministry by these Pharisees, and they're, like, they're, they're asking him, what is the greatest law? And they're trying to trap him. But what Jesus says, he, he really blows their minds, and he says, look, you want to know what the greatest law is? I will tell you what it is. All the law and all the prophets hinge on this. And when he says all the law and all the prophets, he, start, like, he gets into their minds. He gets into their theology. He gets into their souls because this is what they've built their entire lives on, all the law and all the prophets, these Pharisees. They've committed their lives to know the law, to know the prophets, to live by them. Their entire nation's history is built on all of the law and all of the prophets. And so when he says all the law and all the prophets hinge on these two things, he has their attention. And what he says is love God and love your neighbor. Are you loving God? Are you loving your neighbor? That is the law of love. And what does that look like? That we'd love God first, that we'd work to honor him in our lives. And as a result of that, that propels us to love our neighbor. Because you can't love God and love your neighbor. Like John's very clear in that in his letters to the church. And so sometimes being right, like Jesus, loving like Jesus is like the woman at the well. We, we need to confront people, but not doing it to win the argument, but doing it to win the relationship. And so when we submit to the law of love, when we obey the law of love, that just naturally puts us into a place of humility. That you can't obey the law of love and be prideful at the same time. You can't do it. And so that we would obey humility through obedience to this law of love. See, it's a not about winning the argument. It's about winning the relationship. So how do we do that? How do I do that tomorrow at work? How do I do that when I get home from church with my family? Peter writes a letter to, to a church, again, experiencing much polarization. People are losing their jobs. They're losing their, their livelihoods. They're, losing, they're, losing, they're being shunned from society. They're being executed for their faith. And this is what Peter writes. 
1 Peter 3, starting in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So how do we live this law? How do we obey this law of love? How do we do it in a practical way? Well, Peter writes here, he says, look, he says, do it with gentleness and respect. He says, always make, always be ready to make a defense. Always be ready to make a defense for what? For the hope that is within you. Not always be ready to make a defense for who you voted for. Not always be ready to make a defense for why you support this candidate or that candidate. Not always be ready to make a defense for why you posted that on Facebook. He says, always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within you. Church, the world has got to see a hope within us. If they don't, we're not doing this thing very well. That we should look different than what our culture looks like. Because there's not a lot of hope in our culture right now. But that there's a hope within us, and that hope is Jesus. That hope is the kingdom of heaven. And that people, when they see it, they're going to ask us about, what is this hope that you have? And in that, we should always be ready to have a defense, have an answer for it. But again, not to win the argument, because he says right here, how do, we, how do we defend it? With gentleness, with respect, with a good conscience. And how do we have a good conscience? A little earlier in the verse in 1 Peter 3, 9, this is what Peter says. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, by giving a blessing since you were called for this, so that you can inherit a blessing. How do we have a good conscience? Because we're not going to respond with evil for evil. We're not going to respond with insult for insult. That's what rivalry does. But that we would not do anything within rivalry, but we would do it with humility, with gentleness, with a clean conscience, with a clear conscience. Mother Teresa says this. I love this quote by her when it comes to humility. Humility is the mother of all virtues, purity, charity, and obedience. It is in being humble that our love becomes real, devote, and errant, and I'm sorry, ardent. If you are humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know what you are. If you are blamed, you will not be discouraged. If they call you a saint, you will not, uh, you will not put yourself on a pedestal. I love, there's good news. When we, I, want, I have good news for you this morning. The good news is this, that when you are humble, that when you respect others, when you do things in a good conscience, when you work to win the relationship, you know what happens? Peter tells us, good news. You're going to be slandered by those who revile you. It's good news. It doesn't always mean they're going to respond in the way we hope to respond when we work to win the relationship. It doesn't mean they're going to like work hard back. He says, you will be slandered. Yay. And he says, you know what you do when you're slandered? Hand out blessings. Because we got to look different than our culture. Because there's a hope within us. Humility. Can we approach our society, our polarized culture, with humility? What is humility? What does that look like? Just thinking that I suck? Just thinking like, oh, like, no, not me. That's not humility. I love this quote by a guy named David Brooks. He's a, he's a columnist writer for the New York Times. He's not a Christian. I would say he's a deist for sure. Um, but listen to what he says, what humility is. 
Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself, but accurately of yourself. It is an adequate view of your own nature and realization that you are not equipped to perform the acts that God has asked you to perform. See, humility is leadership. So often we go, oh, no, what you're talking about, that sounds like weakness. There's times for weakness and times for strength. Well, I would say that there's some truth to that. There's times when we need to be more gentle with people and times to be less gentle with people. That was totally Jesus. He demonstrated that clearly. But it is not weakness. It is complete leadership. And again, it's not thinking lowly of yourself. It's thinking accurately. Like, man, I am gifted. God has given me some gifts. And God has given every one of us gifts. God has given me a job to perform. He's given me a role in this life. But I cannot do it apart from him. See, arrogance and pride says, I can do this without God. I can do this on my own. And humility says, no, I know God's called me to things, but I am not equipped to do it without God. And I would even say without community around me. So I want you to ask yourself this morning as we close up, I want you to ask yourself, what relationship in your life have you been working so hard to win the argument and not the relationship? Where in your life has this being played out right now? And I would challenge us to repent of that. Again, repent means I would think differently about the way I'm approaching this relationship. Maybe it's a, a very deep, intimate relationship, a spouse, a son, a daughter, a parent, brother, a sister, or maybe it's more of a fringe type relationship, a teacher, a co-worker, but that you would look at your life and go, man, where have I been so wrong when I've been trying to be right? And I want you to imagine what could life look like if we, if we approached it differently about trying to win the relationship and not the argument. What would our community look like? Would they see the hope that is within us? Let's leave here today being right in what we know and who we know God is and be humble to our community. Let's win the relationship and not worry about winning the argument. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are God. Thank you that you are not just right, but you are Lord and that we can learn and we can see, we can follow you, God, and that you are the best way. You are the best way to live. God, you are the best life on this earth for us. God, you are the hope in a hopeless culture. God, you are the light in the darkness. God, you are the foundation when everything around us is falling apart. Lord, and that we can turn to you and we have a hope within us. But Lord, I pray that we would learn the proper way to share that hope within us. That it would not come through winning the argument, but it would come through winning the relationship that, yeah, we're gonna, we may approach conversation with facts, we may approach conversation with truth, but God, at the end of the day, we're going to see others as being more important than ourselves. We're going to see others as being the ones, God, who you are reaching out for, that we have not earned anything before you, that we are not better than anyone around us. But God, that we would be humble, and in being humble, that we could stand and be right positionally. God, teach us how. Teach us how, God. Let us follow your example. As Paul says, let us put on the example of Christ. In your name, God. Amen.